0: This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our program is made possible with the support of our members and friends. If you'd like to make a donation or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that one can aid their own understanding of a Dharma talk or Taisho if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. So this is, um, case 79 of the Blue Cliff Record, Tozu and the Buddha's Sounds. We'll begin this morning with Yuan Wu's preface to the assembly. Yuan Wu says, the great way manifests itself naturally. It is bound by no fixed rules. The teacher does not have to exert themselves to bring their students under control. Tell me, who has ever given such an example? See the following. Main case. A monk asked, Tosu. It is said, all sounds are the sounds of the Buddha. Is it true or not? Tosu said, true. The monk Said, Master, don't you make farting sounds? Thereupon Tosu hit him. He asked again the monk, Is it said, it is said, rough words and gentle words return to the first principle. Is it true or not? Tosu said, True. The monk said, May I call you, Master, an ass? Tosu hit him. End of case. So it's good to have everyone here on this cold morning and sharing this space. This practice with everybody. This tradition. The container of practice. Which is so rich and powerful. Goes back. Hundreds and hundreds of years this this container of practice you know it's it's very easy after practicing for some time, and many of you are sort of entering that territory to begin to take the form the the container of practice for granted you know it's very easy to do that um, and so to step back and really appreciate this form that's been handed down to us. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, it's, a, it's often referred to as a ferry boat. The ferry boat of that takes that takes us to the other shore, right?
1: Takes us across. It's
0: also the the ferry boat that takes others across. So there's that too, you know? There's the boat of our own awakening, the the journey. But then we, at some point, take the oar, the wheel, and bring others across as well. So we can talk about the, the ferry boat of the tradition, but there's also just this ferry boat of... The practice itself. You know, the ferryboat boat of this breath.
1: Of this moment.
0: Always here to take us across. It takes us across to here. It doesn't go anywhere else. It goes from here to here. The ferryboat. boat of breath.
1: It's such a simple boat.
0: It's very simple. Dana, my wife, just bought a used hybrid car, and she was quite nervous about all the new technology inside of it. You know, that it's got this LCD screen, um, you know, and it's monitoring the battery and telling you if you're driving in eco mode or, you know, and if if you're charging the battery, you're draining the battery. Blah, blah, blah. You know, it's quite nerve wracking for her to navigate all this. And yet a car is just a car. It's got a steering wheel and a gas pedal and a brake pedal.
1: So Simple. It's the same with the practice. It's just
0: the breath, just this moment. It's very easy to get confused about the practice, about our life, but then we just bring ourselves back. <clears throat> it's nothing complicated, right? treating people with kindness, not complicated.
1: Yeah. Taking care of our spaces, not complicated. Trying our best, not complicated. Sharing a meal, enjoying a good meal, not complicated. This is what all of the masters are pointing us back to.
0: In this case, Tosu is pointing us back to that. But, you know, we need these reminders. I don't know how many doksans I would go to, these meetings with my teacher, and it just was a reminder. Come back here. It was nothing more complicated
1: than that, you know?
0: we need these reminders, but it's, it's something about these, this, the more simple it is, the more complicated it gets in our minds. And, and then when we get confused or we get turned around, it's, it's like, we need to be reassured that we're doing it right. We're, you know, I think this is one of the reasons that religion exists. is 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 sort of like this reassurance: you're doing it right, right? You're doing you're doing okay, just the way you are. You're doing it right, or you're not doing it right. You're not doing it. Doing it right, not doing it right. You know, this is where we tend to fall. Is am I doing it okay or not? How many of us have that script running in the background? Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. It's a complicated world. Like how do we do it right?
0: And so it's nice to have some kind of direction, you know, some something to fall back on. And yet the directions we receive, they can often become Part of the problem, because then we rely on the directions, the reassurances, the the right or wrong. So in this introduction for the case today, Yuan Wu says, the Great Way manifests, manifests itself naturally. It's not bound, or it's bound by no fixed rules. you know, it's tempting to look to rules, right? To look to regulations, to look to laws. And they can be helpful. They can be, it's nice to know whether we should drive on the right side of the road or the left side of the road. You know, that's helpful. But then if you take that rule, you go to Britain, and you apply that rule, you're going to be in trouble, right? And so rules can fail us pretty quickly, I, I would I would say. I, I've shared with some people here that when I was in training, we would get these instructions on the instruments, you know, how to hit the mokugyo or the kesu or the yinkin bell. And inevitably, almost after every sit, there would be somebody's name called out. Could I see so-and-so? And if you heard that, you knew. <laughs> it's like you were going to get some correction. Right? Please play the Mokugyo a little faster next time. Right? And then you think, well, wait a minute. Last time you told me to slow it down. <laughs> right? <laughs> now you're telling me to speed it up. But it's not a rule. There's no rule. It's what's called for in the moment. And so a part of our practice is to look at these rules, the rules that we impose on ourselves. And to to see how many of our rules uh, are outdated, needed, need a software update. How many? do they
1: function are they adapting
0: you know this ferry boat the buddha the buddha talked about the teachings as being like a boat that takes people across like a raft he said he said it was like a raft and but he said the what a lot of people do is they take it across they talk take this raft across but then they Carry the raft around with them. They get up. They get up onto the shore, and <laughs> they they keep carrying the raft rather than the raft carrying them. You know. So we might ask ourselves, what are those rules? What are those reasons that we're carrying around with us unnecessarily? You know? How are they weighing us down? Sometimes they're really hard to see. It's because we've become so rule-bound, it becomes difficult to see. They're fused with really who we take ourselves to be. I talked about that a few weeks ago. Uh, Maybe we do this exercise together. Maybe you've done this before. So everybody, if you're willing... Take your hands and put them up in front of your face. How well can you see? How well can you see the zendo, see the people, see what's in front of you? And now just slowly bring them further away from you.
1: Further and further. And then Drop them into the lap. We're not getting rid of the rules. We're just dropping them a little bit,
0: right? They're still there. It's such a nice visual example of how we can get in our own way, you know. There's a um, a well-known psychoanalyst. Her name was Karen Horney. She was a Maybe, I think she studied with Freud, but she coined this phrase, the tyranny of the shoulds, the tyranny of the shoulds. She said that we constantly are bouncing back and forth between what she called the idealized self and our real self. The idealized self, which is so bound up with rules and to be this way. I need to be that way. And this real, this real limited self, you know, constantly beating ourselves up for our failings to meet up to that idealized self. Yeah.
1: She said that we're like
0: fish swimming in a fishbowl with really short memories. We, We recognize it, and then we forget it. We recognize it, and we forget it. And this is what the practice is, right? We we wake up to this moment, and then we forget. And then we wake up, and then we forget. It's kind of like these trapped fish. You know, it's not just individuals that become rule-bound. It's also corporations, companies, right? That do it very purposely. Th- that they f- they fall back on their policies, on their rules, abiding by the laws, so finding that very thin edge that they skate. Right, now we're, we're 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 within the law here. Or they they hire lots of attorneys mm-hmm. to look for those loopholes, right? To to thread it oh so carefully. <clears throat> And so there can be a confusion within us. What's right? What's, what's, what's the law? What's the rule? And what is ethical? What's moral? What's, what's good for our life versus the rules that we've imposed on ourselves? They're two different things. Sometimes we know what's good for us. We know what would be good for our life. And yet we can't quite bring ourselves to live it. We're still rule bound. Does anybody else have that? Like you know, you, you want, you know it and yet can't bring yourself to do it. But you know, becoming a spiritual adult in a way is really about seeing those differences, taking responsibility for that. So in this main case a monk asks Tozu. He says, it's said that all sounds are the sounds of the Buddha. Is it true or not? Tozu says, true. So in Zen we wake up. We wake up and confirm for ourselves that all sounds are the sounds of the Buddha. Not just sounds but all phenomena the phenomena of the Buddha, every thought, every gesture. As Hakwant says in that chant we just did, from the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. And so in Buddhism, it's recognized that all sensations, so all sensations, all sensory input, uh, produce feelings, produce thoughts, produce reactions, produce impulses within us. These mental and physical reactions, over time, they begin to gain a head of steam. They take on patterns and become the very sort of underlying habitual way that we, re- we engage with the world. And as we grow, and these become more and more entrenched, that's where the self begins to take root. This is who I am. I'm the type of person that when I hear this, I don't like that. Or when this happens, I like this. You see, this
1: is the creation process of the self. It becomes our worldview.
0: The way we see the world. So the question is like, what do we do? Because the truth is, most of us don't experience the world of all sounds as the sounds of the Buddha, do we? Now, one, one thing that we could do is to cut off, cut off from those thoughts. Sometimes meditation is viewed in that way, that it's a process of cutting off from, you know? But that's not Zen, right? In Zen, the basic instruction in Zazen is to keep all of your senses open, to keep them alive, awake, aware. So when we cut off, and we know when we do, we are really creating more suffering. So how is it that we can keep ourselves open without getting snared by this process of creating these worlds within ourselves? This is really what the practice of Zazen is about, to shed light, over and over again, to investigate those habitual snares that we keep getting caught in when we hear sounds, when we encounter forms, when we interact
1: with people.
0: And so we not only investigate those habitual snares that we fall into, but we also take it a step further in Zen practice, which is to investigate the actual I, the person, the selfhood that gets caught over and over again—not only the habits, but what is the I that's getting caught? We could say that it doesn't exist. This I. Some of some of us hear that in Buddhism. The self doesn't exist, so we may say that the self isn't really here. But is that our experience, right? Or is that just a sentence? So to keep looking back to our experience. It's, it's very hard, you know. This, this sense of self is so entrenched, it, it's almost seamless. It's almost seamless. It's like when we're dreaming... When you're in a dream, you're in it. You're, you you believe it. When you're flying, it feels really cool. Mm-hmm. Right? Or when you're being chased or when you're naked in front of that classroom, <laughs> <laughs> it's terrifying. And yet, when we wake up, it's all gone. Where did it all go? It's not real. It was just a dream. And so delusion, the sense of self, is, from a Buddhist perspective, is the same. When we're convinced of something, it's so easy to believe, right? When somebody does something, for example, and we know what they did was wrong, and then next day rolls around and we find out, oh, whoa, wait a minute. No, actually it was, it was me that was wrong, right? Instantly, our worldview is correct and it doesn't feel good. Master Nansen, when he was walking with one of his students, he said, he pointed to a peony flower and he said, most people see this flower as if in a dream. That was his teaching. What is that dream? And the question is really, what is outside of that dream? What is outside of the dream? Right. One of the, I think, most amazing things about the human condition is that we can find out we're not stuck. This is what we might call the, um, to use Christian term, the good news mm-hmm. of Zen. Is that we can find out <clears throat> for ourselves. Like, and each one of us that's here, that's practicing, knows this because we all have an inkling. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. We have, we have a sense that there is something. That we are caught in a dream.
1: You know, this is Buddha nature. That inkling inside of you is Buddha nature. It is trying to know
0: itself. That wondering inside of you is your truest nature. As when somebody said, "It's the universe trying to know itself through you. Trust that. Trust it. And so at the core of Zen practice, it's seeing that all these processes that are happening, they're empty. It's the emptiness of the meaning behind the sensations. When we don't, when we when we when we get caught in the meaning, we get snared. There we are. We're snared. We're caught. We're in the dream. And the opposite is true too. We can have these moments when we're not caught, when things become absolutely clear, clean, open. Aware,
1: and then we're not caught.
0: In a way, we're, we when when that happens, then all sounds, all phenomena are freed. Then we free them. We talk about freeing all beings. We also free all of everything that we encounter from all of the the layers and labels and perceptions and sort of judgments that we impose on them it's like we're imposing prison sentences on everything that we see we're not clinging to them we're not averting them we're hearing is just hearing you know there is no one who hears because there's nothing that is being reflected on it's just hearing I came across a, 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 a Japanese phrase that Okamura Roshi used. Okamura Roshi is in um, a Soto Zen tradition, and he said he, as a, as a young person, heard this phrase that really struck him when he was a child, I believe. He heard this on Japanese radio. The phrase in Japanese is wari no mushi um, naru mushi shigaru, no, shigure which I butchered, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it translates as within the chorus of insect sounds, I am also an insect. Within the chorus of insect sounds, I am also an insect. You could say within the chorus of raindrops, I am also a raindrop. Within the chorus of cars, I am also a car. Within the chorus of cushions, I am a cushion. This is what happens when the senses become, or not the senses, but the the reflection process becomes quieted through extended sitting like we're doing today. That is, if we choose to return over and over again to it rather than to engage in the reflection process.
1: So this monk asks,
0: Tozu, all sounds are the sounds of the Buddha. Is that right or is that true or not? Tozu says, true. What do we hear when we hear Tozu response? True. Sometimes it's translated as "right." So the question becomes, "All sounds are the sounds of the Buddha, right or wrong. Right. What is Tozu saying? Is he caught in right and wrong? Is he saying yes as opposed to no? As some of you know, Joshu was asked by a monk, does a dog have Buddha nature? Joshu said,
1: no. Moo,
0: right? Moo. But another time, Joshua was asked, does a dog have Buddha nature? And he said, ooh, means yes. Was he contradicting himself? If we're caught in meaning, then yes. If we're caught in yes and no, then yes, he's contradicting himself. How else can we hear Joshu's response, Muh. How else can we respond or hear
1: Toza's response? Right. True.
0: When the mind is prepped with concepts or kind of swimming in concepts, which we all are, this right and wrong. Then we're going to fall into it right away. We're teaching Araya how to read now, and um, it's quite a fun thing to do. And so she looks at a word. Put yourself back into being a five or six year old. Remember, you look at the word, and then you sound out the syllable, b b bed right? Or her favorite, oh, oh, Well, actually she likes the word fart. There you go. <laughs> she wanted to write that one down in her journal. She tried that one. Speaking of the case today. But it's quite beautiful to see her sound out each syllable. And um, how, how at first it's just the sound. It's just the dad, dad, dad. And then, boom, concept. Dad. Right? Meaning. Ah. Which is, in a way, a beautiful thing, and yet that's the
1: problem. Then we're in
0: the snare of meaning. Aren't all sounds the sounds of the Buddha? Tozu says, right. The monk replies... Master, don't you make farting sounds at that Tozu hit him? In a sense, what, to, what this monk is asking Tozu or saying to Tozu is, well, if all sounds are the sounds of the Buddha, well, farting sounds are the sounds of the Buddha, right? Like, shouldn't the mind not discriminate, right? All sounds are okay. All thoughts are okay. All actions are okay. And I was thinking about this response of the monk. It reminded me of a story of, of a friend who told me that he was at a cocktail party, this was many years ago, and uh, at a friend's house. And the friend had a child. Uh, I think it was probably three or four. And this, this child had a habit of going up to adults at the cocktail party as they're trying to have conversations, just like kind of... Standing right next to them, getting really close, and then just whispering a word, like, (laughs) like, penis. (laughs) You know, and it was just, let's get a reaction, right? Let's see what happens. (laughs) You might call this attention seeking behavior. Yeah. And yet when I was thinking about that a little bit more, it became clear that what children are doing in a sense is trying to push against or to challenge those limits, the limits that they're asked to stay within, the rules that they're asked to stay within. This is what teens do as well. It's
1: like it's, it has to happen.
0: Perhaps adults do this as well, right? One one way it happens is through midlife crisis, right? The crisis, because the limits that we feel are getting so constraining that they become untenable, unworkable, right? And there's this, in, in a way, midlife crisis is just, well, I need to blow up my life because I can't just do it skillfully, (laughs) <laughs> I have to blow it up so I can get out. And so you could say, well, this, this is a pretty unhealthy thing to do. And yeah, as adults, it's a pretty unhealthy thing to do. But there's something healthy in a way about pushing against the constraints that we feel. That's a very healthy thing. But in Zen, we do it very consciously. See, this is the difference. We do it through silent sitting, questioning, reflecting. We don't do it in a defiant
1: way, right? Like kids do.
0: We do it through direct seeing. So this monk, in a sense, is right. He's right. All sounds are the sounds of the Buddha, including farting sounds, And yet there's a kind of a provocative energy in his tone, isn't there? He's trying to push against the limits here. The footnote, and yes, there are footnotes to these cases. The footnote to this case says, the monk knows how to grab the tiger's whiskers. And by the way, the tiger is chosen. Crashing thunderclaps in a clear sky. But he doesn't notice the bad smell of his own shit. There's, there's many stories in the Zen tradition about similar things. One is um, it became the title of a book, Dropping Ashes on the Buddha, where somebody came into a Zen place and took their cigarette and dumped the ashes on the Buddha. Claiming, well, it's all empty. All sounds are the sounds of the Buddha. There's nothing holy or profane, right? It's all empty. It's all okay. Mm -hmm. But yet their understanding is still unripe. Yes, it's true. It's all empty. And yet. You can get caught in emptiness too. You can get attached to all things are empty. All things are okay. You can get snared in any kind of idea. You can get snared in the idea of freedom. That's what this monk is. He's snared in the idea of his own freedom. Just being provocative is being snared. Being defiant is being snared. And so going back to the introduction, Yuan Wu says, remember, he says, that the way manifests itself naturally. It is not bound by fixed rules. So even this idea of being free can become a rule. You see this in people that do what they want, when they want. And so when we come to the Zenda, we encounter the forms, the tradition, and we can have a reaction to that. What is all this form? It's too formal. I want something a little less formal. Too many rules. I thought Zen was about being free from rules, right? I've heard that so many times.
1: <laughs>
0: yes, it is. It actually is. It is it is about being free from rules. But it's not how we think. It's actually being, trying to be free from our ideas about the rules. So apply this to your own life. So we're not really being confronted by the forms as much as we're being confronted by our own ideas, our likes, our dislikes. And so we work with that. That's the whole point. We work with it. We put ourselves into those uncomfortable places. You know, what else are we going to do in our life? Are we going to keep avoiding those uncomfortable places? You can do that, but you've already done it. And it doesn't really work. So this monk is being provocative and yet there's something wonderful about his provocativeness, I think, too. He's testing the water. He's alive in a way. So, you know, it's like, I like it when people, in a way, are more provocative or come here and they want to know, they test a little bit rather than just kind of accepting things or slinking away because they don't like it, right? But they push a little bit. It gets a dialogue going. It's life, right? It's about practicing together. So there is something, maybe it's the the defiant part in me that I, I, I can admire this monk in a sense. So being a provocateur, he tries again, in this column, he tries again. He, he says, Well, after he gets hit, he says, It's said that rough words and gentle f- words both return to the first principle. Is that true or not? Tozu says, True. The monk said, May I call your master an ass? Thereupon Tozu hit him. You know, the other night we were talking about the kyosaku, the, the stick. That we use in retreat mainly it 's used you know to wake us up to bring energy back to the body when the body 's sleepy in the zendo, and we were talking about how it 's so we don 't have i think somebody mentioned that we don 't really don 't have any examples in our culture where hitting somebody is a good thing right and so of course, when somebody gets hit with the stick it 's like. While they're being punished, right? That's a understandable reaction. But in Zen, it's never about punishment when somebody gets
1: hit. It's it's the teaching.
0: It's trying to get the student, in a way, it's trying to get the student out of his way of thinking. It's like a shock to the system. You know, the footnote for this part of the case says I hit he should be hit it won't do to let him go and in the commentary for this case Secho says the monk had taken his views about sound and form Buddhism and stuck him stuck them to his forehead right stuck him to his forehead and so when we're, in, when we're stuck in our own stuff, when we're stuck in our life, rule-bound, sometimes we need to get hit. You know, not necessarily literally hit, but we need something to knock us out of that orbit of being stuck. Sometimes we need just a gentle hit. Sometimes it needs to be forceful. And sometimes we just don't get hit at all. We, we just need to let somebody or ourselves just encounter it, the suffering when it finally gets to us, right? And sometimes we get hit over and over again, and it, we still never learn. And that's okay, too. That's okay. Okay. It reminds me of a a quote from a Rumi poem. He says, sit and be still and listen, for you're drunk and you are at the edge
1: of a precipice. Be still and listen. In other words, wake up. You're drunk and you're at the edge of a cliff. Watch
0: out. We need to get hit. Wake up. So, this is the function of a teacher in many cases, and this is what Tozu is doing. But we also need to do that for ourselves, right? To notice when we're drunk with our own ideas, when we're drunk with our own opinions, when we're drunk with our own rules, when we're when we're drowning in our rules of our life of what we should do, what we shouldn't do. This is what's okay, this is what's not okay. And sometimes we have to say how many times am i going to keep doing am i going to keep doing this how many times <laughs> and what's the answer to that like what do we do? what do we answer when we say how many times is it going to take we learn mm-hmm. as many times as it takes right that's, that's how long as many times as it takes you know if we are caught in the tally we're never going to get there. If we're saying to ourselves, damn it, I got caught again. I got snared again. When am I going to learn? This is, I'm, this, I can't do this anymore. Then we're snaring. We just have to keep doing it. It's, and that's why I always say to people, right? That the practice is not about getting somewhere. It's about returning Over and over and over again. That's the practice, returning, not getting successful. And anybody can do that. That's the thing. Anybody can return. You don't need spiritual genius to just wake yourself up and return to this moment. And so this monk is lost in his own ideas of equality. All sounds are the sounds of the Buddha. the practice is really to operate more and more from the moment rather than our ideas or our assumptions about it. And so like we have this precepts class starting next week. And one of the fundamental points about the precepts is that they need to meet the moment. They're not rules. They're guidelines, sure. We can look to them in that way. But they need to meet us. They need to meet this life. They shouldn't be fixed rules, but should inform how we meet this moment. You know, otherwise, we're getting into orthodoxy, which isn't responsive. So, as we continue our sitting today, let's just notice how we get lost in our ideas and see if we can back out of those and meet the moment as it comes, you know? So meet the bell as it rings. Meet the, you know, when we're eating, just eat the lunch. When we're done, just cleaning. When we're
1: done with that, just resting. And then everything
0: just falls into its proper place. So why don't we stop here and recite the four vows? (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.